I always think of this day as perhaps, and I hear other people say the same thing, the most important day of the year. But then I think to the birth of Christ, and I think, how do you distinguish one from the other? It's all important. So I kind of view the entire life of Christ here on earth, beginning with his immaculate conception, if you will, to borrow the phrase, his divine conception when uh, the Holy Spirit came upon the young girl Mary, and then um, she conceived her son, Jesus, the Son of God, and then he grew up living a perfect, sinless life, and at the age of 30, launched into about three and a half years of public ministry before being crucified, and then on the third day, we know the big deal, the resurrection. So it's difficult. I'm, every year I'm tempted to say that this is the most important day of, of the year, but like I say, it's difficult to separate that from the rest of his amazing, miraculous life. But this is definitely the apex, the culmination, if you will, the reason that he came. He came with a very specific mission. God sent him into the world, his one and only son, to be the savior of the world, to die on the cross for the sins of all of mankind. Acts chapter 1. Now, most of you have heard of a guy named Luke, right? Dr. Luke became a close follower of Christ after his death, close companion and associate with the Apostle Paul. Luke has the distinction of being the only writer in the entire Bible to be a Gentile. Luke was a Gentile physician, so he was highly educated, highly intelligent, and he actually, from what we know and believe to be the case, embarked upon an, an investigative mission to find out all about Jesus and what happened while he was here on earth. We believe that Luke went around and interviewed different ones of the disciples and followers of Christ and even the mother of Jesus, Mary. And so he was taking on the part of somewhat of an investigative journalist. And I bring that up because he writes, he wrote the book Gospel of Luke, obviously, based upon all those interviews, all the investigative work that he did. And then he also wrote the book of Acts. And he begins the book of Acts here in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, so he's writing to a particular individual named Theophilus, and he's, the former account that he's referring to is his gospel of Luke. He says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. I love that. Because Jesus' earthly ministry was just the beginning. He told the apostles, greater works than my works shall you do. Now, you need to take a look at that because Jesus did it all. He healed the sick, he cast out demons, he raised the dead. How could we possibly do anything greater than that? What I believe and others believe is what he meant by that when he told the apostles greater things, he meant in scope. Jesus' ministry was isolated to the nation of Israel, a very tiny country in the Middle East, and his public ministry only lasted three and a half years. But now for the last 2,000 years, the followers of Christ have made an impact all over the world. So he says, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive. This is the official account from Dr. Luke. After his suffering by many, and this is the key phrase here that I wanted to focus on before we get into the main body of the message, he says, by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So after Jesus' resurrection, he spent 40 days here on earth meeting with his disciples and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that 500 people witnessed the risen Christ all at one time. That's way more number of witnesses than you need 
to confirm something in a court of law, right? But I love the term that Luke uses here. And again, he's a doctor, he's educated, he's intelligent, he did his homework. And he says infallible proofs. That means beyond dispute, beyond question. In the heart and mind of Dr. Luke, it was absolutely unquestionable that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And there have been many others down through the centuries who have sought out a similar task of trying to disprove the resurrection. One famous man, Frank Morris, wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? And uh, he was an investigative journalist as well, started out as an atheist, set out to disprove the resurrection, became a born-again Christian. And I just read an article on World Net Daily talking about several different people with that same type of a background, coming from the secular world, from an atheistic point of view, determined to prove that the resurrection was a hoax, it was a fake, only to find out that indeed it was true and they turned their lives over to Christ. It's been 2,000 years, more or less, give or take a few, since Christ rose from the dead. And up to this point in time, no one has been able to disprove his resurrection. In fact, quite the opposite. As Luke has said, many infallible proofs. Now, we're about to embark upon a rather uh, challenging task. Mark 16. Turn in your Bibles there if you have them. Mark 16 or look on the screen, but it's good to stay in habit and practice of using your Bible. We are going to cover verses 1 through 16. See why I say it's a daunting task. <laughs> but we're going to do it one way or the other. So, <laughs> I'm going to read through this passage before we begin. Mark 16, 1, now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him, Jesus, of course. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed." And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. So she went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for this awesome day, this awesome opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, Lord. Give us insight and understanding as we study this most famous, perhaps, of all stories, Lord. And it's not just a story. It's a real historical account of what took place when Christ rose from the dead. We ask you to bless this time of study and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Sabbath was passed began and still does begin the sabbath at sunset on friday and it concludes with sunset on saturday evening so it's a 24-hour period the sabbath was passed and these women mentioned here mary magdalene mary the mother of james salome they were the last ones at the cross and the first ones to the tomb 
And they bought spices to anoint Jesus' body. Now, we know that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had already provided some things for Christ's burial. But it was a quickie. Uh, They had to get Jesus down off of the cross, get him in the tomb before sundown, because you're not allowed to handle a dead body on the Sabbath. So it was a hasty burial. And the ladies wanted to do it properly. They wanted to express their love for Jesus. And I think there's even a point to be made here that if we truly love Jesus, we will never say, oh, others already have it covered. I don't need to do it. Whether it's giving, serving, praying, reading your Bible, we see that they did not make that excuse. Well, Nicodemus and Joseph already prepared the body. I guess that's good enough. They were determined to honor the Lord and improve upon that initial hasty burial. And as you probably know, the Jews did not practice embalming. So the oils and the spices, that was an Egyptian practice, by the way, the embalming. The oils and the spices used to suppress the stench of the decaying body and to express love and devotion for the deceased. And I was just recently reading I think it was Josh McDowell who wrote a great book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He's another one. In fact, if I knew this, I had forgotten it. But as I was looking back the other day, Josh McDowell was another one. How many of you heard of Josh McDowell? Great Christian, evangelical, apologist, author. Josh, as a young man, was also an atheist. And he set out to disprove the resurrection and wound up writing the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I didn't realize that that's the way it all came about, that he actually started out as a non-believer. But according to him, there was over 100 pounds of oils and spices used, and with the linens to wrap the body, over 100 pounds. So here they are. They've brought all their ingredients, if you will. What does this tell us? First of all, it tells us that they did not expect to find Jesus alive, did they? You don't, you don't take a live person and wrap them up with oils and spices and linen. And this is in spite of all the prophecies that he had given to his followers during his three and a half years of earthly ministry. And Old Testament references similar. They didn't expect him to be alive. So it's very early in the morning on the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday because Sabbath... Friday sunset to Saturday sunset, that was the last day of the week. And even to this day in Israel, the work week begins on Sunday, which is traditionally here in America and other Western nations, Christian nations, Sunday's your your day of rest, your day of worship, and then the first day of the week is Monday. And I was thinking, it might give us a whole different attitude and perspective on our Sunday worship if we have viewed this day as they did, the first day of the week. This isn't the end of the week. This is the beginning. We start the week by worshiping God. Don't you like that? That's a good way to start the week, don't you think? So it's very early in the morning on the first day of the week. Hence the uh, practice uh, of many churches, maybe not so much this year, but in years past of the sunrise service. I'm thankful that I live under grace and I'm not compelled to get up that early. (laughs) I'm perfectly happy to have Resurrection Day service at the regular time. I'm more rested so I can preach better that way. (laughs) So they're talking among themselves here. You know, thinking this thing through a little bit. Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Now, They probably were not aware, but as we look at the other Gospels, we find that uh, at the request of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high priests, the leaders, the Israelite leaders, the Romans had put a Roman seal on the stone so that if anyone tried to move it, the seal would be broken and they would be exposed. They also stationed up to as many as 16 Roman soldiers there to to guard the tomb. But all the ladies are worried about is who's going to move the stone for us? 
Now, we're pretty sure the stone weighed several thousand pounds, at least a couple thousand, if not more. And um, we have visited on various trips to Israel. The garden tomb, I'll talk about that more in a few minutes, but a site that many believe is the genuine tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, where Jesus was buried. But you can see the, the um, track, if you will, stone track going down towards the opening the stone would have been several thousand pounds and would have been rolled down into place in front of that tomb. Three or four ladies would not have been able to move it. It was rolled down a slanted track, meaning they would have had to roll it uphill. And just, uh, you know, we have a lot of rocks around here. It's kind of a deserty region. Uh, we've got some of those um, volcanic rocks in our yard. And just a small one can be extremely heavy, right? Can you imagine trying to move this massive stone, you know, flattened, you know, not a massive boulder, but just a giant wheel carved out of stone, then rolled down to cover the entrance to the tomb. So they were either too overcome with grief to think about these things, or they were simply trusting and believing that God would work a miracle, which is interesting. That's a good way to look at it, right? They went to the tomb by faith, believing that somehow they'd be able to get in there and prepare Jesus' body, but at the same time, they weren't expecting a risen Christ. You know, and they might have even recalled the words of Jesus at this point, Mark eleven twenty three, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now, I doubt that any of us in this room have ever literally spoken to an actual mountain and had it move, but I can testify, and I bet you can too, that there have been mountains in my life that God has moved. Issues, problems, situations that seemed so massive that I didn't see any way for it to be resolved, and yet God did it. Can you relate to that? And so, they might have been thinking about that, well... Jesus said if we had the faith of a mustard seed, we could move a mountain. So somehow, we'll get that stone moved so we can prepare the dead body of Jesus. They could trust God to move the two-ton stone, but they had no expectation of the resurrection. Again, we shouldn't be too critical of them, because had we been there, we probably would have been in the exact same frame of mind that they were. Verse 4, when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. In other words, you couldn't miss it. They could see that it had been moved. It was still there, but it had been moved out of the way so that now they had access to the tomb. And by the way, I think we all know this, but the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out, but to let the women in to see that the tomb was empty. And by the way, there were no Roman soldiers in sight. What happened to them? <laughs> they fled in fear at the sight of these angelic beings descending and moving the stone. Men who, uh, if they left their post, the, the punishment was death. Of course, they made a deal with the, the Jewish elders and uh, everything turned out okay for them that they would lie, that they would tell people that the disciples came and stole the body, and in turn the Jewish elders would protect them from punishment by their Roman superiors. So here we go, verse 5, entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Notice he's described as a young man. Angels are often described in the Bible as having the appearance of a man. Nonetheless, they were alarmed, or it could be translated utterly amazed or dumbfounded. Not necessarily because they realized that he was an angel, but because there's no dead Jesus in there and there's some young guy sitting there inside the tomb. A very alarming scenario for them. But he said to them, verse 6, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. 
And again, as we know from other gospel accounts, the wrappings, the linen wrappings were laying there, but no body inside. Which, uh, by the way, you've probably heard of the Shroud of Turin. Very interesting, very interesting. Some have verified it as being authentic. Others have questioned it. But it's an extremely interesting phenomenon, and it makes a lot of sense because they say it's like a negative, like a photographic negative. Remember the days when we used film? You remember the negatives? Some of you young people may not even know what I'm talking about. It's just like vinyl records, although they've made a comeback. If you hang in there long enough, you see. (laughs) But if you can imagine the dynamic force that was unleashed when Christ rose from the dead and that he did take on a new form on the the night of his resurrection. He appeared to the disciples, but he didn't use the door. Do you remember that? He just was there. So his body has a different material makeup, enabling him to go in and out of rooms without using the door. So his body passed right through those grave clothes, those wrappings, those linen wrappings, and was laying there flat on the slab where his body would have been laid. The ladies see that linen lying there with no body inside. So their initial reaction, it says that they were alarmed, utterly amazed, dumbfounded, They may have thought, wow, we must be in the wrong tomb here. But the angel is very specific about who they're looking for and what's become of him, isn't he? He says, see the place where they laid him. Look, there's no body there. There's the grave clothes, but no body. Now, in John 20, verses 6 and 7, we're told about when Peter and John come later on, they have a foot race to the tomb, if you recall. Always in competition. See who can get there first. Now the funny thing, and again it reflects their their individual characteristics. John beats Peter to the tomb. We kind of always picture John as maybe more, you know, thin, muscular, wiry. Now Peter would have been muscular too, but probably bigger, bulkier guy, right? John gets there first, but Peter's the first one to go in. Mr. Impulsive Peter. Boom! He goes in. But unlike Peter and John, who would come a short time later and go inside, the women apparently looked in from the outside and saw enough to really freak them out. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of General Charles Gordon. He was a a Christian man, converted uh, in his young adult years, I believe, late teens, early adult years, a great general for Great Britain. But when the garden tomb was discovered, it was actually discovered sometime earlier, but he's the one who really brought it into the public focus. In 1885, General Charles Gordon, he was convinced that this was the place where the body of Jesus had lain. There is a traditional tomb inside the wall of modern Jerusalem, and they've built a uh, Catholic church around it. There's no certainty about this site. The garden tomb was hidden for centuries. It was covered up with rubbish 20 feet high. And when they first cleared the spot, with great caution, they gathered all the dust and debris within the tomb and carefully shipped it to the Scientific Association of Great Britain. Every part of that which they removed was analyzed. And here's an interesting thing. Here's a tomb that's been there for a couple thousand years. There was no trace of any human remains. And if this spot, the garden tomb, any of you ever been there? Some of you have because you went with me. It's a wonderful experience. If this is truly the real tomb of Christ, and by the way, as you begin your tour down through the garden and ultimately you could go around and come down to the tomb, there's a lookout point there where you look out and you can see the place of the skull, Golgotha. And even after a couple thousand years of erosion, it's now an Arab bus station right at the bottom there. Kind of sad. You can still see the face in the side of the mountain. 
why, that's why they called it Golgotha, the place of the skull, because it looks like a skull. So if this spot is the real tomb of Christ, then Jesus, who would not have left any human remains, right? Because he rose. He was the first to be laid there, and he was also the last. Tomb was never used again, which would make perfect sense. So this young man, this angel, he says, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Now the last time that Peter had looked into Jesus' eyes, Peter did not go to the foot of the cross. Uh, as far as we know, the only disciple slash apostle that was there at the foot of the cross was John. And it was there with Jesus' mother Mary next to John that Jesus said and he committed the care and keeping of his mother into the hands of the beloved disciple John, remember? Peter was not there. He was off hiding somewhere. The last time that he had looked into Jesus' eyes, he had just denied him three times on the night of his trial. And so Jesus wants to make sure the message is sent through this angel. Tell his disciples and Peter, because Peter was totally disheartened. He was ready to throw in the towel. He was ready to give up, go back and become a fisherman. Jesus had called Peter, James, John, Andrew out of their boats on the Sea of Galilee. He said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But Peter felt like he had totally failed. He had totally let the Lord down, which he did. But Jesus' message to Peter was, it's okay, Peter. I know your heart. You're forgiven. Don't give up. And that's a message that all of us should be able to relate to. And certainly there are times when we, we may feel that way. And I want you to know when you start to have those kinds of thoughts, hang it up, give it up. You are a failure as a Christian. You're a joke. And you look at other people maybe that you perceive to be these great men and women of God and you forget that they're just real people like you and I. And no matter how godly they may seem, they're still not perfect, right? When you hear that voice telling you these kinds of things, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's the enemy trying to get you to give up, to back down, to throw in the towel, you know, he'll tell you all kinds of lies that sound very logical, very reasonable. Well, you know what? If you can't be a really good, strong, godly Christian, then why bother at all? You ever heard that one? That's not the point. We're saved by grace through faith. Jesus died for us because we could never be good enough. And Peter, thinking that he could... You know, Peter was always trying to, not that he wasn't the only disciple to do this, but he was really good at it, trying to show the Lord how spiritual he was. You know? Lord, if my brother offends me, how many times should I have forgiven? Seven times? Because seven's the number of perfection, right? So, Lord, wouldn't I be really spiritual if I forgave someone seven times? They've offended me over and over, and yet I've forgiven them seven times. And Jesus says, no, Peter, 70 times seven which equates with an infinite number, by the way. This doesn't mean 490. It means forgive over and over and over again. And the message was, that's how God is with us. Now again, the devil will try to tell you, you know what, you've already asked forgiveness for that sin so many times, God is not going to forgive you anymore. You've run out of forgivenesses. But you haven't. God's grace is unlimited. His forgiveness is unlimited. We only miss out on it if we fail to ask. Ask, seek, knock. Guilt, shame comes from the enemy, not from the Lord. The, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's a real thing. But that's out of God's love for us and his desire to keep us close to himself. When the enemy comes, he wants to separate us from God. That's what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. He mixed a little bit of truth in with a lot of lies, deceived Eve, and managed to separate man and woman from their creator. Jesus came to fix that. 
to bring us back into connection with our Creator. Tell his disciples and Peter. And of course, we know that he does meet up with them in Galilee, but even before that, he will appear to them twice there in Jerusalem when they're all hiding, and he comes in. First time, no Thomas. So Thomas, again, like these guys initially, doesn't believe it. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it until I can, you know, touch the wounds in his hand and his side and so forth. So a, a week later, Sunday evening, Jesus appears again. And this time Thomas sees with his own eyes and believes. We'll get to that in a moment too, I believe, unless that was a different message. Okay, so verse 8, they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, the ladies, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I would say that everything about their actions at this point indicates that they still did not comprehend what had taken place. They had more fear than faith at this point. The angel tells them to go bring that message to the disciples and to Peter, but it says they went out and said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, part of that fear was because they still didn't understand what had happened. They were not comprehending that Christ had indeed had risen, even though the angel told them that. The other fear would have been out of the, the idea that no one would believe them, and we'll see what happens with that. So now, verse 9, when he rose, Jesus, on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. The first person Jesus appeared to was one a woman. You know, Jesus was actually the first true, real liberator of women. What is Satan's desire? It's to put everyone in bondage. And he has different methods for different people. We talked about this last week when I shared that my wife said, I talked about the fact that uh, when my daughter with her young child, year and a half old, had a, had a tire with a nail in it and went to try to get it fixed and they made her wait for two hours or more. And I said, well, gosh, you'd think they'd have a little consideration for a young woman with a baby. And my wife said, no, not anymore. Women have shot themselves in the foot with feminism, with modern, secular, humanistic, demonically inspired feminism has done exactly the opposite of what women wanted it to do. If you want to be a truly liberated woman, then give your life to Christ. And then nobody, ladies, can put you under bondage no matter what. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You know some of the freest people on this planet are actually behind bars? Because if you have Christ in your heart, and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then there's no one or no thing that can put you in slavery or bondage. But you can be out walking on the street and be totally bound up in your own sin and your own deception. The thief, Satan, comes but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And in the process of all this secular humanistic feminism seeking to so-called level the playing field, there's no longer any honor, respect, dignity, or appreciation for women, for children. Have you noticed that? On the one hand, there's this massive move by the liberal left that parents don't know how to raise their kids and the government should be raising your kids. By the way, they've already done that in communist countries. You know that? The Soviet Union, communist China. Look what's going on in those countries. And now they're telling you, you don't know how to raise your kids. We need to raise your kids for you. But at the same time, they're murdering as many as they can before they can even get out of the womb. God's not the author of confusion or chaos. When you have people fighting to save the baby seals, at the same time fighting to kill human babies, something's not right. But lest I get too far off track. So notice, she was a woman. And in Jesus' time, women 
were not held in very high esteem. But they were by Jesus. Notice all the, the first people to go to the tomb, women. Some of his closest followers were women. The first person that he appeared to in his resurrected body was a woman. And possibly, some speculation that she was a, possibly a former harlot, Luke chapter 7. And we definitely know from what we've already read here this morning that she was demon-possessed. He cast seven demons out of her. So again, lest you think you're not good enough for Jesus, what did he tell the woman caught in adultery? First, he chased off all the legalistic Pharisees that wanted to stone her to death, remember? And they wanted Jesus to join in with them, bring him into their evil deed to stone this poor woman to death. Jesus challenges them all. They back away. They leave. He says, woman, where are your accusers? Well, they're not here, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Really? She was caught in adultery, but he didn't condemn her. But he did tell her what? Go and sin no more. And so here we have Mary Magdalene. Now, what did she do? She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. So Mary Magdalene was the only one out of this group of women who were the first ones to the tomb. And she was the first one Jesus appeared to. She was the only one who had the faith and the courage to bring the report of Jesus' resurrection to the disciples. And what are they doing? They're mourning and weeping. Big burly fishermen. Manly men. Spent three and a half years with Jesus, traveling the countryside, sleeping on rocks. What does this tell us? The apostles, sadly, had no expectation of Jesus being resurrected either. The ladies that went to the tomb did not expect it. The apostles did not expect it. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they immediately began to rejoice. No, it doesn't say that, does it? We don't want to change the scriptures, do we? Some do, we don't. They did not believe. And as I mentioned, in ancient Israel, a woman's testimony was not considered to be valid evidence. They didn't believe it, or here's how the New American Standard Bible puts it. They refused to believe it. Which actually, the title of the message today is Belief is a choice. Did you know that? Have you ever heard anyone say this? Or maybe you've said it. I'd like to believe, but I can't. That's really not accurate. You can. It's a choice. And hopefully by the end of the message, anyone here today or watching online, on the Roku channel, YouTube, what have you, we're on a lot of different Facebook Live, I guess it is. Hopefully by the end of this message, if you've not chosen to believe, you will. Belief in Jesus and his resurrection has always been a choice. John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, here it is, because you've seen me, you've believed. Now Thomas had the advantage of hearing from the other ten. Judas is dead. Eleven apostles left. The ten saw Jesus and they told Thomas, but even with that testimony, that witness, he wouldn't believe until he saw Jesus for himself. Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you realize you and I are more blessed than Thomas? Yes. I haven't seen him, but I believe. I've seen him in my heart and in my mind. Even when Jesus was still on earth, in his resurrected body, he attributed the greater faith and the greater blessing to those who had believed without seeing him alive. 1 Peter 1.8, again, this is the New American Standard Bible. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Is that true for you this morning? And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Some might say, well, if only I could have been there to see for myself, then I would believe. I could and would believe. 
but through the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, you're there right now. And you can see Him in your heart and your mind, again, if you choose to do so. All right, verse 12. After that, He appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. Another form. And I would say that what this means is different from the form He had before He was crucified and risen. John 20, 19, the same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. And again, the, as we mentioned, the doors were shut. John, the writer of this gospel, makes it a point to point out the doors were shut and yet there's Jesus in a different form with the ability to appear in a room without using the door. This is the different form, I believe, that it's talking about here. John 20, 27, he said to Thomas, reach your finger in here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side where the wound was. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, you would think Jesus being resurrected now not only immortal in spirit, but immortal in body. Again, the first fruits of those risen from the dead. Wouldn't you think that all the wounds would have been healed up? But they're there for a reason. Jesus' wounds have been permanently preserved in his resurrected body as an eternal reminder of what he did for us. And I have to give kudos to Mel Gibson, another imperfect human being, but from the biblical account powerfully portrayed in the film The Passion of the Christ, we know that Jesus' entire body, you've never seen it depicted as accurately and as graphically as in that film. Jesus' entire body, including his face, was beaten to the point that he no longer looked like a human being. That's what he went through for us. Isaiah 52:14 from the NIV. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. And all that took place, folks, before they nailed him to the cross. He was, you've heard the expression, beaten to a pulp? Literally, that's what happened to Jesus. So he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. This is the story of Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 13 through 32. So he appears to them. He appears to Mary Magdalene. He appears to these two men on the roadway, walks with them for a while, even sits down to eat with them, if you remember the story. And when he broke the bread... They recognized him. Verse 13, and they went and told it to the rest. So Mary Magdalene goes and tells them, they don't believe it, you crazy woman. Cleopas and the other disciple, they go and tell them, but they did not believe them either. And so much for the female witness excuse, right? Because now we've got two men testifying to the same thing and you know what? It's a good thing. Thankfully, man's refusal to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ does not make it untrue. Sadly, it's only untrue for the one who refuses to believe it. But people's unbelief has nothing to do with the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed risen from the dead. Fourteen later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He had prepared them over and over again. And yet, they would not believe. And he rebuked them for it. It wasn't for lack of evidence or witnesses then, and it isn't now, folks. Understand this. I mentioned Luke's statement at the beginning, Acts chapter 1. Many infallible proofs, undeniable, irrefutable, indisputable proofs 
regarding the fact, the historical fact, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's not for lack of evidence, and it certainly isn't for lack of witnesses that people refuse. What did we see in the New American Standard Bible? They refused to believe. But it's out of stubbornness and pride. Faith, my friends, is a choice. Refusal to believe factual information, in my opinion, is just plain foolish. But people are preconditioned, predisposed to not believe. You have to choose. Faith is a choice. John Singleton Copley, one of the great legal minds in British history, and three times High Chancellor of England wrote, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. You know, whenever I find myself perhaps struggling a little bit with my faith, which I don't know, I'm being honest with you, I don't allow any of that to even have a moment to creep into my heart and mind. That doesn't mean the enemy doesn't try to come and mess with you. But one of the things that always encourages me, I look back over the history of the church and I see the amazing men and women of God who have gone before me and the ones who exist in the world today. I say, well, I'm, I guess I'm not crazy because those people are amazing people of great intellect, great knowledge, great wisdom, and they've come to the same conclusion that I have, that God is real, Jesus is alive, and he died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead and has promised me eternal life in paradise. And when I look around at the ones that don't believe, they do have the mark of idiocy upon them. So I think I'm on the right side. And I think you are too if you've put your faith in Christ. I've told you before, sin will make you crazy. And what we're seeing all around us today is proof positive that that's the case. Okay, so what does Jesus do immediately after he rebukes them? He rebukes their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. People that they should have believed, that they knew, that they trusted, they were reliable, trustworthy witnesses. He rebukes them, but then immediately he says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Unbelievable. Right after he rebukes them for all of the above, he, he gives them the great commission to go out and preach the gospel. Again, how encouraging. Praise the Lord. We don't have to be perfect to be used by God. That's another one the devil will use on you, by the way. Well, you know, who are you to be trying to tell people about Jesus? You're not qualified. Look at your own life. You're not worthy. You better just shut up. No, God uses imperfect people. These guys who didn't believe in the resurrection minutes, hours, days ago, now he says, go preach the gospel. And I witnessed it in the days of the Jesus movement, which I do talk about from time to time. I met Greg Laurie when he was about 19 years old. Long hair. Beard, wild and crazy guy. Already out there preaching the gospel, teaching the word. God was raising up the most unlikely people. All the early Calvary Chapel guys, bikers, drug, drug dealers, you name it. If we are willing to be rebuked, that, here's the whole deal right here. Again, all of those young men and women that came to Christ during that Jesus movement era coming from all kinds of backgrounds, many of them not very good, they all had one thing in common. They were willing to be rebuked. They were willing to be corrected. They were willing to humble themselves before God and says, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please save me. That's all that's required. I think it was Pastor Chuck Smith that said this. Whoever said it, it was a good saying. Those whom he calls, he equips. He equipped his disciples. All the bigwigs in Jerusalem were totally put off 
by Jesus and his disciples because they didn't go to the seminary in Jerusalem. All the disciples were trained personally by Jesus. Jesus, being God, didn't really need any training. If we are willing to be rebuked, instructed, corrected, if we're willing to agree with God, that's what confession means, that you agree with God. What does God say? You're a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you're willing to agree with Him, if you're willing to confess your sins before Him and repent like the woman caught in adultery to go and sin no more, understanding we are imperfect human beings. James says in his book, we all stumble in many ways. The moment you receive Christ, the Bible says you're born again by the Spirit of God, but you're not perfected yet. That won't happen until you see Jesus face to face. Right now you believe even though you haven't seen him, and because of that you'll be rewarded by seeing him in person. If we're willing to be instructed, corrected by the Lord, he will use us to further his kingdom. How many of you would like to be used by God to further his kingdom? Then he tells them, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. He who believes, or one translation says, whoever believes. So it's for anyone and everyone. No matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, he or whoever believes. And by the way, the focal point of that belief is what we're talking about today, the resurrection. If you want to become a true follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, a born-again Christian, as it were, then you must believe in his resurrection. That's the whole ballgame. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says if there's no resurrection, then we're to be pitied above all people. The resurrection is the whole ballgame. If he's not risen, you might as well not bother. But guess what? He is risen. Amen. He who believes in the resurrection, he who does not believe will be condemned. Now he does say baptize, but the core of the message here he who does not believe will be condemned. The emphasis is on belief. Yes, baptism is a way that we publicly profess our faith in Christ. As John was baptizing people in the Jordan River for repentance and then Jesus came, John says, oh no, I'm not baptizing you, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. Jesus said, no, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. He set the example. But it's not the baptism that saves us, it's the belief. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul doesn't mention baptism here. Baptism doesn't save us, but the public act of obedience, baptism, is evidence of our salvation. The reason I point this out, there are some groups that teach, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. What if you get saved here this morning and you go out and get run over by a car? Will you go to heaven? Absolutely even if you're not baptized. But you know what? If you go out of here not believing and you get run over by a car, you're going to go someplace you don't want to go. We can work on the baptism part, but the belief is absolutely essential. There's no loopholes, folks. Either you believe that Jesus is risen or you don't. To believe, as I've already pointed out, is a choice each one of us must make. And here's the deal, and this is why I believe a lot of people avoid making that choice, avoid making that decision, because if he is risen, and he is, then you really have no other choice but to serve him. Do you realize that? If Jesus really is all that he says he is, all that the Word of God says he is, all that millions of people have said he is over the last 2,000 years, then you really have no choice but to serve him. How do you not serve the one and only Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead? How do you walk away from him? You can't. And so many people choose to not choose. But guess what? That's a choice. That's a choice. To refuse to believe 
will result in condemnation. Jesus says it right here. He who does not believe will be condemned. Is that what God wants for you? No. Peter said, Peter wrote that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, repentance, at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, John the Baptist and then six months later, Jesus, they both came forth with the same message. What were the first words out of their mouth? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That means to turn and go the other way. Turn from following a life, a self-serving, selfish life, to one of following and serving God. Repent. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. To refuse to believe will result in condemnation, not because that's what God wants. It's your choice. People say, if God's such a loving God, why does he send people to hell? He doesn't. He doesn't send anyone there. We choose. You have a choice. Did you know that? Why would anybody choose hell over heaven, over paradise? Oh, I'm going to party there with all my friends. Good luck on that one. There's going to be a weenie roast, and you're going to be the weenie. <laughs> you think it's going to be party time. The only one that's going to be partying is the devil watching you fry. And he won't be partying either because he's going to be suffering too. Let me close with this record. How many of you have heard of Josephus? Flavius Josephus, Jewish historian, writing sometime before 100 AD. There was about this time, Jesus, a wise man, says Josephus, if it be lawful to call him a man. Again, Jewish historian. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. I love that. Jesus is a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. I've told you before, it's not enough to simply acknowledge the truth. God wants us to love his truth, to be a lover of the truth. Every bit of it. The warm, fuzzy parts, the parts that are not so comfortable, the parts that make you feel very uncomfortable when you read them, we're to love all of his truth. Jesus was a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. When the Bible tells you that you're a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner, you're supposed to love it. You are. Because all that does is tell you how much more God loves you. Wow. It's not that I'm so worthy of his love. Quite the opposite, which makes what Christ did for us all the more amazing. He drew over to him many Jews and also many of the Greeks or the Gentiles. This man, listen to this, Flavius Josephus, Jewish historian. This man was the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him from the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive. He doesn't say it's generally reported, or so the story goes. He simply states it as a fact. He appeared to them alive on the third day, the divine prophets having spoken these and thousands of other wonderful things about him, infallible proofs, as Luke talks about. And even now, I love this, the race of Christians. Because we're no longer citizens of this world. We're citizens of God's eternal kingdom. We've been recreated in Christ. We are a race unto ourselves. The race of Christians, so named from him, has not died out. Let's stand. Now, I've talked all morning about belief being a choice. I'd like everyone to bow their heads for a moment. Close your eyes. Let's just focus on the Lord. And I want to encourage anyone here this morning or anyone even watching on the internet, if you have never committed your life to Christ, if you've never 
invited him into your life to be your Lord and Savior, acknowledging him as the one and only Son of God who died on the cross for the sins of the world, I'm challenging you this morning to make that choice, to make that decision. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I would invite anyone even here this morning in person or watching online, if you would like to make that choice. Maybe you've been putting it off. Maybe you've been avoiding it. Maybe you've even been kind of fooling yourself into believing that you're already a Christian, but you know in your heart of hearts that's not true. You've not totally sold out to the Lord. I would encourage you to do that right now. Pray along with me. But only if you mean it, only if you're sincere. But it's a step of faith. And when you step out in faith to receive Christ, then God will meet you there in that place. He'll meet you halfway, as it were. He reached out to us 2,000 years ago by sending his son. Now he's calling upon us to reach out to him, take hold of his hand. Just pray along with me if you'd like to receive Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. Lord, I confess right now I agree with you. Father, your word tells me that I'm a sinner, and I know that to be true. Please forgive me of my sins. I want to repent. Help me to turn from following my own path and now begin to follow your path. I ask you to come and live inside of me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And give me the strength, Lord, to live for you, even as you died for me. I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. I would encourage you, if you prayed that prayer, talk to somebody that you know is a believer, one of us on staff or someone else here today. Let them know that you've made that commitment, that decision, so we can encourage you and kind of help follow up with you as you enter into a whole new life in Christ. And if you're watching online, go to our website, calvarychapeleast.com. Get a hold of us. Contact us by email or telephone. And we'd love to talk with you about your new life in Christ as well. Well, first, I want to pray for people, so keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Anyone here this morning needing prayer, please lift your hand. We'd like to pray for you real quick. Quite a few out there. Lord, you see each one. You see each person that's raised their hand this morning. You know what's going on with them, Lord, whether it be health issues. Certainly, you are uh, the great physician. We pray for physical healing for those in need of it this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have no limitations. We can call upon you anytime, place, and you can hear us. You will hear us and respond. We ask you to pour out your healing oil upon those needing a physical touch today, whether they be here in person or watching online, or even if someone's raised their hand on behalf of someone else that's not here. Lord, we ask you just to send your Holy Spirit to touch them, to heal them. Lord, if it's a mental, emotional issue, anxiety, stress, worry, doubt, fear, Lord, your perfect love casts out all fear. We ask you to cast out fear from those struggling with that right now. Lord, if it's need for provision, you are our provider, Jehovah Jireh, we ask you to provide for those in need. And Lord, work through your church, the body of Christ. Help us to be made aware of those in need that we might step in and help do our part. But we do thank you that you've promised to provide us with our daily bread, the needs that we have in this life, not only physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Pray for broken relationships that you'd heal those, Lord. Help us to be peacemakers, instruments of your peace. Lord, even if we perceive that we might not have done anything wrong, we can still be the first ones to reach out and uh, make peace with those that are, we're at odds with. Lord, you know everyone here today. You know every heart. You know what's on their hearts. We ask you to minister to them and hear their cry, hear their prayer, Lord. And we agree together with them now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think we know why we're taking this communion today. We've talked about all that Christ has done for us. And again, we talked about baptism and how we are certainly encouraged in the scriptures to be baptized. Jesus said those who believe and are baptized will be saved. So I would encourage anyone who's not been baptized to seek that out. It's been a little bit difficult lately with the pandemic and everything, but there are ways to accomplish that. But the most important thing is that you believe. And so the same thing is true with communion. This wafer and this juice will not save us, but it's us making that statement that we know that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is sufficient to pay the price for every sin that we've ever committed or ever will commit. 
The bread Jesus told his disciples represents his body broken for us. We talked about the severity of his physical punishment. And so this little wafer doesn't look too abused, but it reminds us of how abused Christ was. Not because he deserved it. He didn't have to go through it. The Bible says he could have called down legions of angels to deliver him. He chose not to. He chose to go through it for us. And when we see him, we will see those wounds in his hand and his side. We'll be reminded for all eternity what he's done for us. And we acknowledge that here today and we celebrate that. Let's pray over the bread. Father, we thank you for this little wafer, the unleavened bread representing the broken body of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Lord, no leaven because Jesus had no sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took upon our sins. Our sins nailed him to the cross. But Lord, we thank you that Christ went through what he went through willingly out of love for us. We ask you to bless this bread as we partake together now in Jesus' name. Amen. And so it was after the Passover meal, as we know, that Christ took the cup of redemption, passed it around, told the disciples, this is my blood poured out for the sins of many. Why many? Why not all? Because many over the last 2,000 years have acknowledged the efficacy of this blood, its ability to save, to cleanse. And many have, others have rejected. It's available to anyone and everyone who will believe, who chooses to believe. The blood of Christ, the only remedy for a terminal illness called sin. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this cup representing the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for our perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ, who poured out his blood that we might have a remedy, an antidote for our sin, that terminal illness that will surely cause death, not only physical death, but spiritual death. We thank you that we have newness of life through the shed blood of Christ. We ask you to bless this cup in Jesus' name. Amen.